0: ...favorite stories is told of a uh, Texas billionaire who had a daughter of marriageable age. And he hosted a party, and it was a coming out party for her, and it was at his large estate that he had. And uh, to this party, he invited 50 of the most eligible bachelors that he can think of in the community in which he was involved. Later in that evening, at the appropriate time, he took these 50 men outside to his backyard where he had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And he gathered them all at one end of the swimming pool and he offered this ultimatum, this challenge. He said to the first man who could swim from one end of this pool to the other, which he had happened to have filled with alligators and water moccasins and some of the gnarliest creatures you could ever find, he said the first man that would swim from one end to the other, he would give a choice of three things. The first would be 1,000 of his most oil-producing acres that he owned. The second would be $1 million in cash. ...or the third, the hand of his daughter in marriage... ...and no sooner had he mentioned the last thing... ...there was a splash... ...and out of the other end of the pool... ...jumps this young man. Man, he was excited. He ran to the other end of the pool... ...he put his arms around him... ...he said, son, what is it? What do you want? He goes, do you want, do you want the land? And he goes, no, 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 sir... I, I, don't, ...I don't want the land. He goes, oh, do you want the cash? Do you want the million dollars? He said, no, 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 no sir... I, I, don't, ...I don't want the money either. He said, oh, then you must want the hand... ...of my daughter in marriage... And he said, no, 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 sir, not her either. And he said, well, son, I don't understand. You don't want the land, you don't want the money, you don't want my daughter. What is it, son? What do you want? He goes, I- I'd sure like the name of the d- dude that pushed me in the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, w- once again, we are reminded that things aren't as they may appear and neither oftentimes are people. And our story identifies a young man who at first glance appeared to be very brave and heroic... ...only as the truth was revealed to see otherwise. You know, the Bible clearly warns that external appearances can be deceiving... ...and that God is not like us, mankind, who gets hung up so often on the external appearances. In fact, the Bible says clearly that God isn't like us at all... ...and that He considers the heart and not the external appearances. And, and well, He should because He knows the heart. You know, He knows our hearts... In fact, we're told by God to consider the heart. Jesus often warned that those who appear to be the most religious, those who appear to be the most godly, at least from a human or man's perspective, were the ones that he said were the furthest from the kingdom of God. Could you imagine that? The ones who we think often are the closest to God are many times the furthest from the kingdom of God. See, because God knows our hearts. Not only are they furthest from the kingdom of God, but they're on the road to hell. You know, the Bible warns that there are many who will be professors of faith, but not possessors of eternal life. There are many who are counterfeits and not genuine. The parable that Jesus gave said there are many who are tares and not wheat. If you've got your Bibles as an introduction to our new series, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Because it's in this passage that Jesus clearly warns of the danger in looking at outward appearances. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning with the verse 13, we read these words. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Could you imagine the shock? That will take place the day that many who believe that they're on the road to heaven, many who are assured of their presence in the kingdom of God as they stand before the great and almighty judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, and hear these words, the very last words before they are condemned for all of eternity. There's a frightening truth that many fall into this category and not just a few. And I believe the gospel of easy believism, which makes no moral demands on the lives of sinners, has spawned a generation of professing Christians whose behavior is indistinguishable from the rebellion of the unregenerate. Statistics reveal that 1.6 billion people worldwide are considered Christians. Another poll indicated that nearly 33% of all Americans claim to be born again. But based on Matthew chapter 7 and other passages that we'll examine in this series, those figures surely represent millions who are tragically deceived, and theirs is a damning false hope. When Danny mentioned the percentage of people who do the service or the work of the Lord is only 20% of that, I've got to consider the evidence that we have in Scripture that maybe there's a reason that goes far beyond just people not willing to do it. Maybe it's deeper than that. And yet, despite what the Bible clearly teaches, I've yet to meet a, quote, religious person, a churchgoer, God-believer, ritual participant, Bible reader, who would ask of themselves, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I one of those many who will stand before you one day and ask the question, but didn't we do all this in your name? Wasn't I active and busy and doing good things? I mean, are we willing to ask ourselves, is it me, Lord? One of, the beauty, one of the beauties of Scripture is that, you know, when Jesus said that one of his disciples would betray him, that all of them were open to the possibility that it may have been them. They said, is it I, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Am I the one? You know, they were willing to, see, to admit that they could have blinders on, that they could be deceived, and all of us need to be open and teachable. We all need to be open to God and say, am I one of these many? Am I deceived? Am I on the road to condemnation or been condemned already? And on the final judgment, am I going to be one of those who are shocked before your presence that it was me? And I praise God for the word of God, which gives us the truth. But you know what's interesting is, nor have I run into very many pastors, teachers, who, although the Bible warns very clearly, are false teachers. In fact, Jesus called them wolves, uh, ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. ...but inwardly knowing the heart God knows. I haven't run into too many Bible teachers or pastors or anybody... ...who would put themselves into that category. You know what? Hey, maybe I'm a false teacher. I haven't run into one yet. But i got to be open to ask myself the same question. Am I one of them? And how would we know? And we know because Jesus says that there will be evidence... ...though God knows our hearts, praise God for that... ...there will also be external, visible evidence that we can measure... ...to say whether a person falls into one category or the other. So today in this new series that begins... ...we'll address uh, the concern, these concerns by examining the life of a man... ...God identifies, and uh, I put it in this terms, ...He identifies them as the real deal. You know, in 20 years of working with professional athletes... ...I've heard this phrase used over and over again... ...because there are so many prospects... So many people come and it goes, man, you know what? They got all the tools. They got everything it's going to take to be successful. But you know what? There's very few that everyone's in agreement and says, you know what, though? But that guy, he's the real deal. He's the real deal. You know, and we're talking about a true child in the faith. There's no doubt whatsoever as we examine this text about his relationship with God. And from his life, we'll see five characteristics in him that are true of a genuine believer, which should also be true and used. ...as a standard for each of us to measure our own life. 2 Corinthians thirteen five encourages us to examine ourselves... ...to make sure that we are in the faith. Paul wrote, Peter wrote these words, he said... ...be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling... ...and his choosing of you. Luke six forty four tells us it is right to examine our lives and evaluate the fruit that we bear. For he says, for each true is known by its own fruit. And we see that again in Matthew chapter 7. You will know them by the fruit of their life, the evidence of their ministry, as to whether they're the real deal or not. You know, and what's exciting to me is such an examination will not discourage or create doubt where there should be none. You know, God's Spirit does bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He wants us to know that. He wants, the assurance. he wants us to have the assurance that only God can give... ...and not the false assurance, the damning assurance... ...that our enemy wants us to have... ...who is a liar from the beginning, as the Bible clearly tells us. And yet on the other hand... ...it's not God's desire for those deceived by the enemy... ...to have a false hope that leads to hell. Second Peter 3.9 says, "...for God desires none to perish but all to come to repentance. And so with that very sobering background, that backdrop, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. As we ask the question, who is this man that God assures us is the real deal, and what are the characteristics of a genuine believer? You know, if we ask that question in our culture today, I think we would be very surprised to hear that the characteristics that most would identify would be those who, well... Believe in God. I believe in God. I'm a good person. You know, at the end of the day, I want to do more good things than bad things. I saw a movie the other day. I don't know if anybody saw it, but they know that the uh, the moral of the movie, so to speak, was that, you know, at the end of the day, I try to make sure there's more good things in the ledger than bad things. And as long as I close each day, you know, in the positive column, that somehow or another, that's how God's going to weigh and examine me. You know, but if we ask the question, what are some characteristics of a genuine believer? Those are the answers that we would hear. You go to church, you give to charitable institutions. Uh, you're a good person by contrast to other people that you know. You attend church at least as often as you can. Maybe every now and then you crack open a Bible. I mean, those are the kind of characteristics that we would look at, but they're none that you'll find anywhere according to God. The characteristics are very clear as we will see them. And as we go through this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're just going to look at two verses today. And the first two are the introduction that we see here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our recently completed study, the book of Acts, will prove to be an invaluable bridge uh, that helps us understand the who's, what's, where's, why's, and how's of the establishment of the local churches that we'll examine in this study. 1 uh, Timothy, in a way of a background, is a, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, belongs to a group of Paul's writings that are known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, they're so named because they were addressed to two of Paul's dear sons, as we will see, true child or true children in the faith. The guy, these guys were the real deal, and we'll see it as we go through it. Um, Timothy and Titus had pastoral responsibilities. Timothy was in charge of the church that was at Ephesus. And it's important for us to understand what that means because until the 3rd century, there weren't weren't buildings like this where people can come collectively to gather. The church at Ephesus met in homes. And there were as many as 200 plus local local gatherings that would come together but collectively be known as the church which was at Ephesus. They were, as we have in here and and we have at Calvary, small groups. There were small groups that met in homes homes and each one of those homes had a pastor or shepherd who was responsible for that small group. Depending on the size of the house would determine how many people could fit there. We saw in the upper room that there was as many as 120 that were gathered at Pentecost because the size of the house could accommodate a bigger gathering of people. Some houses no doubtly may have had eight people, ten people, twelve. We don't know that exactly but we know that there were literally hundreds of these gatherings that were there. Timothy was responsible for, collectively, all of them. And in each one of those homes, or each one of those gatherings, was a person who had pastoral responsibilities. They were a shepherd of that group. And his responsibility was to make sure that each one of those men in each one of those positions were the real deal. Were the real deal. The same is true of Titus, who was responsible for the churches on the island of Crete. And along with Philemon, they're the only letters of Paul that were addressed to individuals. The pastoral epistles yield invaluable insights into the heart of Paul. Because we see a very personal relationship that's here, rather than one that was general to the the churches that we read of his writings. They were very personal in nature. He was talking to Timothy personally, but it's not just to him that God has given this to us. Because as we'll see, it's for all of us to learn what God wants us to do as far as not only the responsibility of teaching others or leading others by example, but as importantly how we should respond to the leadership that God has placed before us it's very important that we recognize and understand all of that, following his release from his first imprisonment, if you remember in Acts chapter the end of the book of Acts, where we saw that Paul was in prison in Rome, he was under house arrest for two years, we know from history that he was released from that imprisonment, those who had brought charges before him never showed up uh, to prosecute the case, so he was released and at that time he may have gone to spain but we do know that he went back and revisited the churches that he had founded and in macedonia he left timothy to take care of the problem that we see here at the church of ephesus he left him in charge the the epistles are important because they contain as, as first timothy tells us uh, in uh, three fifteen, we're told this that timothy may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of god which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the church. We all need to understand that. We all need to understand how to behave in God's house. We have people that come to our house, and you want to make sure they understand how to behave in your house. And those of us who have opened our homes and have Bible studies and other ministries, you realize that there is a variety of thought as far as how children should behave in a home. In fact, we had, and even when you're dealing with younger people, you know, they're clueless. You know, they have a kid, and it's kind of like they don't know what exactly they're supposed to do. And uh, we had one of our early Rams Bible studies, and this is always a dangerous thing to say to a guy who's six foot eight and weighs about 300 pounds and whose kid is diving from the landing of our stairway onto our living room furniture, uh, where you make a statement like, uh, whose son is this? Is his parents here? You know, and it's like, hey, listen, you know what? If you don't tell them to stop doing it, I'll take them and tell them that I would prefer you to do it, sir. <laughs> no, I would prefer you to do it, sir. But it's like, you know, we all need to learn how to behave. And this letter's going to teach us how to behave in God's house how to behave towards God, how to behave towards leadership, how to behave towards one another. It's invaluable from that standpoint. It deals with public worship. It deals with the selection and the qualifications of church leaders. It deals with a pastor's personal life and public ministry. It deals with how to confront sin in the church, the role of women, the care of widows, how to handle money. All of these things are discussed in this letter, so it's not a personal letter written just to Timothy, but it's an open letter written to all of God's people, for all of Scripture is inspired By God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That said, let's take a closer look at these first two verses. First, Paul identifies himself as the author, although we realize that all Scripture is authored by God. There's no prophecy of man that was born from man's intentions or man's thoughts, but holy men of God moved by the Holy Spirit wrote these words. So although Paul is the human author, we know that God is ultimately the author of all Scripture. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. In Acts, we were introduced to this man who had a rich Jewish heritage. He held Roman citizenship. His name at the time was Saul of Tarsus. His Hebrew name was Saul and he was named after the most prominent member of his tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. So he had a rich heritage. Philippians 3 tells us he was most zealous for the law, his, his ancestral traditions, his passion to destroy the name of Jesus and all who would follow him. In Acts chapter 9, as a ...reiteration or rehashing what we've learned... ...if you'll recall in Acts chapter 9... ...Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus... ...he had been given permission to seek out those... ...who would claim Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord... ...and he hunted them down and he was going to persecute them. He stood in hearty approval of the murder of Stephen... ...and Saul of Tarsus hated the Lord Jesus Christ... ...and the reason for it was that Jesus Christ's message he felt was in opposition to the works of the law, which he believed that the law could save one and put him in a right position before God. If you did enough good stuff and you followed the law, then God would declare you righteous in his sight. Jesus came along and said, you know what? The law is a tutor to lead you to the Savior. We can't live this standard that God has set. None of us are righteous. None of us are perfect. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can do it. None of us have ever upheld the Ten Commandments. We have all fell miserably short. And the purpose of the law was to lead us, a tutor, a teacher, to lead us to the fact we need a Savior. And so Jesus came as the Savior who God sent into the world, and Saul of Tarsus hated him and those who would ascribe that position to him. And he went to hunt him down in Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus to carry out further persecution, his life was suddenly, dramatically changed forever. The risen, ascended, glorified Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. At that moment in time, he was struck blind, he was saved, He was called to ministry shortly afterwards. He was baptized and after a period of solitary preparation in the wilderness near Damascus... ...he returned to the city and he began to proclaim Jesus Christ... ...and him as Savior, the resurrected Lord. His life was changed dramatically for all of eternity. And it's important that we understand that background... ...because as we will see when it comes to the characteristics... ...that the characteristics that are true of Timothy were also true of Paul... ...and should also be true of all who are the real deal. And so that kind of gives us an update on that. He says that he was an apostle. There's some confusion as far as what apostle is. By definition, apostle is one who is sent off on commission... ...to do something as one's personal representative... ...with the credentials that are furnished. Now, what that means, basically, is that an apostle... ...was sent to carry the gospel to sinners. And there's two, two different words or usages of an apostle... ...so that we have more clarity... ...in a general, or in the most broadest sense... ...many individuals were called apostles in scripture. And those were sent out from the church... ...as messengers of the church. The Bible says that Barnabas was called an apostle... ...Epaphrodites, Andronicus, Junius... ...James the brother of our Lord was called an apostle... ...but they were messengers of the church. In the very narrowest and strictest sense... ...that we're looking at here... ...Paul is called an apostle of Christ Jesus... ...he wasn't sent out by the church... ...he was sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The twelve apostles... ...excluding Judas and then putting in Matthias... ...were apostles in this biblical sense or definition. They were all sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ... ...and now so is Paul. It's important to understand that to be an apostle... ...you had to be witnesses, first-hand witnesses... ...of Christ's words, his deeds... ...and especially his resurrection... Paul qualified on that count... ...since he had met the risen Christ... ...on the way to Damascus. So he was an apostle by Christ Jesus... ...meaning that Jesus Christ... ...the Lord Jesus Christ... ...sent him out with the message that he shared. He uses the the, the phrase Christ Jesus... ...because from Paul's vantage point... ...Paul never had met the man Jesus. Never met him. The apostles had all met the man Jesus... Only later did understand and discover his divine deity that he was and is the Savior of the world. When Paul mentions the name of Jesus, it is always Christ Jesus, his title, his position, his glorification first. Because that's all he knows him as, the risen Savior. And today, I want to challenge each of us when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ... ...that we refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ... ...because he is no longer the man Jesus... ...but he is our resurrected and glorified Savior. He is the conquering judge... ...who will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. He is not the doobie brother version of Jesus... ...who is just all right with me. You know, we got people talking about Jesus... ...you know, it's like, oh, you know, do you know Jesus? Well, listen, you know what? He is the risen Savior... He is the glorified king, the king of kings, the lord of lords. There is none other like him. There is no other name given unto men by which men can be saved. He is the risen, glorified savior. He is not the surfing dude that a lot of people portray him as. That is not our savior. He is glorified, he is risen, and Paul emphasized that because that is how he met him first on the Damascus road. And that is how he is today. Paul emphasized his apostolic authority, not for Timothy's sake, because Timothy never had a problem with Paul's authority. As we'll see, he emphasized it to strengthen Timothy's hand as this letter was read and reinforced in the church. The word of God, until it became complete, was taken piecemeal from the standpoint that this was a letter written to the Corinthians. This was a letter that was written to the church in Galatia. This was a letter that was written to the church at Ephesus in this particular case. And what they would do is they would take the letter and they would go to each one of those home Bible studies, local assemblies and they would read the letter. And when Timothy would go to these local churches and read this letter, it would be reinforced that Timothy's the guy that Paul appointed to be there to reinforce godly truth. And this is what this whole letter is about. So Timothy would show up, his authority would be reinforced by the Apostle Paul, and it's by a command. Notice what he says, according to the commandment. It's not an option. It was a commandment. And remember in our our study of Acts, when he stood before King Agrippa... ...he explained what had happened to him on the road to Damascus... ...explained everything that had taken place... ...and at the end of all of it he said... ...and consequently, Agrippa... ...I could not prove disobedient to the calling. I mean, listen, if God came directly to you and said... ...this is what I want you to do... And you were very clear who had sent you and asked you to do what he's asking you to do. Consequently, I would hope that we would say, you know what? I could not prove to be disobedient to the mission. And let me just tell you how clear this is. That if you're the real deal, there are some very specific things that God has called each of us to do. And consequently, I would hope we would not prove disobedient to the calling Because, as we'll see, it may be the difference between being a tear or a wheat, the real deal, or one who has been falsely assured of a relationship that doesn't exist. Paul's orders came from God our Savior and Christ Jesus is our hope. I I love the fact that someone has well said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. We don't worship a distant, impersonal God. But it says that God, you look at it, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. ...by linking God the Father and Jesus Christ as a source of the divine commission... ...he loses to the deity of Christ. Jesus frequently, frequently linked himself with God the Father. Frequently. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father... ...for I and the Father are one. You know, God our Savior is a title that appears only in these pastoral epistles... ...but its roots are in the Old Testament... ...for in reality, God is our Savior. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son... That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God our Savior from the foundation of the earth, from the very beginning, God had planned to save humanity and reconcile us to God. How he would carry it out is Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. Notice what he says. According to the commandments of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. We have hope for the future because what Christ has done in the past... ...and is doing in the present. You know, in Colossians we read... ...Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 John 3, 2-3 says... ...Beloved, now we are children of God... ...and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we will be just like him... ...because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him... ...purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, the person that he writes this to specifically, and in general, all of us, but he says, to Timothy. We learned of Timothy in in Acts chapter 16, if you recall. Timothy's mother was Jewish. His father was an unbelieving Greek. And the beauty of all of that, and the beauty of that passage is this, that God specializes, and he's in the business of taking people out of difficult family backgrounds and using them for his glory. Isn't that a wonderful truth that we will not be disqualified because of our family background any more than we will be? You know, God doesn't have grandchildren. So we're not going to be disqualified because of our family background... ...any more than we will be closer to the kingdom of God because of it. But we would hope that because of it... ...that we would learn truth at an earlier age... ...and see, see the Savior in our household... ...so that we're attracted to Him. But the reality is that God doesn't disqualify anybody... ...because of our background. His mother was Jewish. His father was an unbelieving Greek. And yet at the same time... ...Jesus Christ changed Timothy's life. And in fact, Timothy's name means literally... ...one who honors God... And it's a beautiful picture of this man's name. It says, to Timothy, my true child. The word true means legitimate... ...as opposed to illegitimate. The real deal. He is a true child in the faith. The word means legitimate. There's another word that means illegitimate. The word that we have here is legitimate. A child has to do with Paul giving birth to Timothy... ...spiritually from the standpoint that God used... ...Paul instrumentally in introducing him to the Savior... ...my true child in the faith... ...which leads us to five characteristics... ...of a real believer... ...that I would hope that you would look at... ...and examine them and examine these yourself. The first one is this... five characteristics of a real... ...or the real deal or genuine believer... ...is saving faith. You know, there's, there's, there's two different types of faith... ...that are often revealed throughout the Bible. One is a real, genuine, saving faith... ...and the other is a faith that has no substance to it. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God... ...and yet they shudder at the thought. And so there's a saving faith... ...and there's another type of faith... ...that has nothing to do with our relationship with God. Contemporary Christians have been conditioned to believe... ...that because they recited a prayer... ...they signed a card... ...they walked down the aisle... ...or or had some other experience... ...that they're saved... ...and they should never question their salvation... As has already been mentioned, we're to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. We're to take a look at the fruit to make sure it's true of our life. We're constantly to examine ourselves, not so that we, don't, not so that we have doubt that we shouldn't have, but so that we have a peace and a confidence and assurance that only God can give us. There is a saving faith. And it's, and it's obviously, as we look at this, it's obvious that Timothy had such faith because notice what Paul said about him. He calls him God, our Savior, who is Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So if Paul's salvation is legitimate, then Timothy's is as well. Because he says to Timothy, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. So he includes him personally in the fact that, you know what, we both have the same Savior. We both have the same hope. So he had a saving faith. In First Timothy 6, if you turn with me for a second, notice in verses 11 through 12... And what we're going to have is kind of an overview of what's going on in in this letter. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and 12, it says, "...but flee from these things, you man of God," which we'll get into when we get to chapter 6. "...pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. "...fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called," past tense. "...and you made the confession in the presence of many witnesses." ...the confession in the presence of many... ...if you recall Romans chapter 10... ...when we studied Romans... ...it's if you confess with your mouth... ...that Jesus is Lord... ...and believe in your heart... ...God raised him from the dead... ...you shall be saved... ...for it's with the heart man believes... ...resulting in righteousness... ...with his mouth he professes... ...resulting or confesses... ...resulting in salvation... ...he professed before many... ...and, and, and as what we see here... ...in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 5... ...Paul speaks of his sincere faith... ...it means that it was without wax... ...without hypocrisy... ...it was the real deal... Unfortunately, not all that were associated at the church of Ephesus were, 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 could fall into that category. There were those who turned aside to fruitless discussions. There were those, the, the Spirit says explicitly in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience... As with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and now know the truth. What he's saying was, hey, there are people that were in that assembly that, you know what, they weren't the real deal. They had never experienced saving faith, though they were coming to the local assemblies and they looked externally like they were part of the churches, the church or the local church at at Ephesus. They weren't one of them. In fact, as we're going to see here in a second, the bottom line is, is that how do you know if this is real in your life? ...continuing obedience. Continuing obedience. The Bible teaches clearly... ...that the evidence of God's work in a life... ...John chapter 3, Titus chapter 3... ...is the inevitable fruit of transformed behavior. We are no longer like what we used to be. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. You can't be like you used to be... ...if you've come to saving faith in the Savior... Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, was no longer like he used to be. He wasn't a man that believed good works would get him to heaven. He wasn't a man who believed that the law was the thing that would save him. He wasn't a man who hated now Jesus Christ and those who followed him. He wasn't a man who, you know, everything he believed in the past, he said, I count it all rubbish, throw it all in the trash can, haul it all away for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If you have truly come to saving faith, if you are the real deal according to God's definition, you will live in continued obedience to the the commandments of God. There is a different way of living. Ephesians 4, Galatians 5, faith that does not result in righteous or right living before God is not saving faith at all according to the book of James. You cannot profess to be a Christian and keep living like hell. You can profess to be a Christian and keep living like hell, but you ain't a believer according to what the word of God has to say. You are one of the many who are deceived and will stand before the Lord one day if... If a drastic intervention doesn't take place <clears throat> between now and then, you are one of those who will stand before the Lord and said, "But I was involved in a Bible study. But I went to church. But I read a Bible. But I gave money. I was even in leadership sometimes. You know, on and on and on. But it doesn't matter because I never knew you." Continuing obedience. Jesus said it very clearly, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." If you abide in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are not, a ground, are not the grounds of salvation, only the evidence of it. Martin Luther put it this way. Good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good work. And that sums it up. We will not work our way to heaven because all of our works are as filthiness to to God in his sight. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection are the only works that God has done that are pleasing by which men can be saved. We either believe him and trust him or we do not. Timothy was the real deal for the pattern of his life was obedience. The Apostle Paul at the end as he writes the second letter that he wrote of scripture. He says this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. The book of Revelation talks about those who overcome over and over and over again. He who overcomes is a real child of God. He who endures. He who overcomes. We hear of many people who make a profession of faith at some point in their life. And then we examine the fruit or the evidence of it and realize that there's nothing nothing there. I went down at a Billy Graham crusade. I went down in front. I went, you know, at a high school camp or retreat. Uh, You know, wherever it was, whatever it was. You know, I did that once. But there's no evidence in your life. What did you do? Were you stirred up emotionally at a moment in time? Was the gospel clearly presented? Did you really understand? What was it that you did? Because walking to the front, as embarrassing as it may be for some people, still isn't enough to get us into the presence of God. What was it that you did? What did you believe? Who is your hope? See, saving faith will produce continuing obedience. You will know them by their fruit. You will examine it in their life and say, hey, you know what? This lines up with what God says. And it's the fruit laid out in Scripture, not what we think that fruit should be. The third thing is humble service. Humble service. Third characteristic of a genuine believer is humble service a true child in the faith the, the real deal paul described the conversion of the thessalonians in these words he said you turned to god from idols to serve a living and true god you turned from god and i from you turned to god from your idols to serve a living and true god we are saved to serve before coming to faith in the lord jesus christ i lived to please myself. To serve me. I could have spun it a whole bunch of different ways, but people that knew me at the end of the day would go, you know what, you're selfish. When a person's truly born again, they're no longer who they used to be. But Christ lives within us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by our faith in the Son of God who had given himself up for us. The Bible says that those who are the real deal will live a life of humble service to the Lord, and to others. We live to serve others. Paul said that he was his fellow worker, and there's no higher praise. And as we see, there will be very distinct contrast throughout as we go through the study that there were those who lived to serve themselves. There were those who were in that membership to please themselves. They had their own selfish ambition. And God would root that out, and, and we would be able to look at it and say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. They're not who they claim to be, though externally you can't tell the difference. only way you can tell is how they live their life. You know, saving faith, continuing obedience, humble service are all based on sound doctrine. He was a man that understood sound biblical truth. He immersed himself in the word of God, and it wasn't his opinion that mattered. It was what God's word said. That is so important that we understand. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. People say, hey, you know, can I ask you something? Sure, but you know what? I'm not going to give you my opinion unless it is rooted and grounded in Scripture because I don't even trust myself when it comes to my opinions. They change from one minute to the next. But if I've got a fo- solid foundation of the Word of God, this is what God says, then it no longer is my opinion. This is what God has to say, and we can rest on that. We can bank on that. We can trust that. The bottom line at the end of the day is, is that Timothy was a man who understood sound doctrine. He who is of God hears the words of God for this reason. You don't hear them because you're not of God. Did you ever try to share spiritual truth with somebody who had never come to saving faith? It's like speaking two totally different languages. You're like this. It's like, you know, you're talking English, they're hearing Italian, whatever. I mean, it just isn't there. They just don't get it. They don't hear it because they can't understand spiritual things. The natural mind does not understand the things of God. I remember before coming to Saving Faith in Christ, sitting down once and trying to read a Bible. And going, man, this is the dumbest stuff that I've ever read. I mean, it makes sense of this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. You know, apart from Him, all things that came into being came into being. And it was like, what? You know, and that didn't even get into genealogies. That was just that part. You know, you're like, what? And then, after coming to genuine saving faith, to sit down and read the Bible, you go, wow, I know what that means. I I now understand that. Because God's Spirit who resides in us understands the mind of God, for He is God. So it all makes sense. It all falls into place. But those who are not saved don't understand that. Timothy was dedicated to sound doctrine. Paul exhorted him to teach the truths that he had learned. He was constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. He was confident that Timothy was doctrinally sound. And Timothy's responsibility was to make sure that everybody that was leading those small groups were doctrinally sound. Because, man, there is no more dangerous place to be than in a Bible study that centers around everybody's opinion in the room what do you think this means? Eh, uh, I know. Like today, I think it means this. Oh, great. And the person next to you goes, well, what do you think it means? And they think it means the opposite. And so you get a whole room full of people who think whatever they want, and it's like they've been studying second opinions for the last 10 years of their life. And it's like, you know, and it's all equally valid because we live in such a politically correct culture that no one can tell anybody they're wrong. Well, that sounds good. That sounds good. The first time I ever went to Bible study was like that, the first thing I thought was, what a tremendous waste of time. If a new believer goes to a Bible study and the teacher says, what do you think this means? Don't answer. Here's what you need to tell him. I don't know. That's why I'm here. Teach me. Because, you know, seriously, think about it. How insane is that? I mean, that was the first Bible study I went to. The guy asked me what I thought it meant. I have no idea. I thought you knew. I'm going to go to a Bible study where somebody knows something. Anybody else want to go? That was insane. It was like, what in the world? See, Timothy was like, he was sound doctrinally. And see, and and, and Paul understood that Timothy, as he went around and made sure the right people were there, that they were people that understood God's truth. And it was God's truth that would go forth not human opinion or philosophy or or psychology or all the rest of the nonsense because God's wisdom isn't man's wisdom. As far as the heavens are above the earth is how far God's thoughts are above ours. Who we think we are that we could put what we understand on the same plane as God. you got to be kidding me. Throw it all away, as Paul did. Put it all in the rubbish. Everything that you've learned, all the degrees that you have that are in contra- a contradiction to the word of God, and throw it all away. Put it in the rubbish. And it takes humility, I understand, because you're going, you don't realize how much my student loans are. You know? But it's like, throw it all away and just go, God, you know what? When it comes to you and your truth, teach me. Teach me. And you know what that takes? Courageous conviction. It takes courageous conviction, and what I mean by that is simply this: any dead, float, any dead fish can float downstream. Any dead fish can float downstream. It takes an alive one to swim against the current of our culture. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you'll know what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable and perfect. any dead fish can float downstream. God's people are called to swim against the current of our culture. Where it is in opposition to God, we must make sure that we don't go with the flow. Be not conformed to this world. In our our base, when I was at spring training in baseball, we had a a baseball chapel meeting, and I'll close on this, but one of the things that was brought up during the meeting, and I I love one of the guys who said it, he said, you know what? Chuck, let me, just, let me just help you and assure you of one thing. There can be no impact if there is no collision. Isn't that beautiful? There can be no impact if there's no collision. The only way you and I can impact this world for the cause of Christ is to collide with those who are in opposition to God. I want to close with an eternally serious question. Are you the real deal? Are you the real deal? How does your life measure up to these five standards that we've just examined? Saving faith, quick summation. You know, the first word that Jesus preached in his public ministry was repent. Repent and believe the gospel of God, to repent. I believe that there are many in our culture who have accepted Jesus, walked down front, invited him into their life, who were never told they needed to repent of sin. Jesus isn't a buddy that we add to our social structure. He is the risen Savior, the only Savior of the world. And the only way we have, that we know we have need of him is to recognize that we are sinners separated from God and on our way to hell. His first words were, repent, turn from sin and turn to God change of heart, a change of mind. If you think you can work your way to heaven, you're going to hell. If you think you're a good person, you're going to hell. If you think you're doing good things that somehow God's keeping track of, and at the end of every day there are more good things than bad things in the ledger, you're going to hell. You will be included in the many who stand before the Lord and say, didn't I do all these things in your name? And he'll say, be gone from me, for I never knew you. We need to repent from sin and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. By God's grace, we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can ever boast that we earned our way to heaven. Jesus paid the price. Jesus did it all. And at the cross is where we've got to come humbly before him, kneeling before him, and saying, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I believe your son has died for me. I believe that he has risen from the dead. I want, him to, I want to know him personally and the power of his resurrection. That's true saving faith. And when a person invites Christ into their life at that point in time and is born again, the Bible says that they will live a life of continued obedience. There is no other choice. If we love him, we'll obey his commandments. We live We live to please him. There will be a life of humble service. Lord, not my will be done. I'm here to serve you. You gave me your best. I owe you my life. I owe you my eternity. We've got people who give each other breaks in business and we feel like we owe them or we're indebted to them. And rightfully so. We need to be gracious toward those or an attitude of gratitude toward those who have helped us in our life. But how much more should that attitude of gratitude be toward God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope? He's given us his best. We've been bought with the price, the very blood of Christ. Live a life of humble service. Live a life that's based on sound doctrine. And it will mean you'll have to have courageous convictions. For there will be many times in your life where the majority of people want you to go with the flow and you have no choice because you're not a dead fish floating downstream. But you are alive and Christ is alive within you and you've got to take a stand in the culture. And as we'll see, there are even times where you know, we've got to do it with, among each other. Because not always is everything that we do are based upon the solid foundation of the Word of God. Men have wills of their own. We have desires. We have wills. We've got things we want to see accomplished. And sometimes we want God to come and follow us and validate it when we're way out ahead of Him. We need to slow down and follow Him. And when in doubt, don't. When the cloud moved at night, they moved with it. When the fire moved, I'm sorry, the cloud in the day, they moved with it. At night, when the fire moved, they moved with it. But they never got from underneath the cloud. They never got from underneath the fire. The nation of Israel as it wandered through the desert, they never got ahead of God. When God moved, it was time to pick up, pack up, and go with them. But until he led, they didn't do anything. And they were busy and they had at it right where they were. The Apostle Paul, when he was, when he was under house arrest in Rome, guess what? God used him. He wrote the, 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 the prison epistles while he was there and he led every person in the praetorian guard, guard got to hear the message that I just shared with you today. Every one of them. So that the whole praetorian guard got to hear of the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. They got to hear they were sinners separated from God. They got to hear that God's remedy was that they would repent from sin. It is God's declaration to all mankind, Acts 17, 30, that all men everywhere repent. The question is, are you the real deal? Here's how you know it. You have repented of your sin. You are broken for your sin. There is a sorrow under repentance. That you've gone to God and you've asked him to forgive you of your sin. That you've trusted what he says, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us, the foremost of all sinners, as Paul says. That he died on the cross for your sin, personally, a personal God. He rose again three days later from the grave, and he is alive today. And if you've invited him into your life, he is alive in your heart. He is alive in you today. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is that true of you? If it is, you're the real deal. If it's not, it could be true of you if you would just humble yourself before God at this very moment in time and pray a very simple prayer. Because God knows the heart. It's even not about the words. It's not about walking here or there or the other. You know what? It's about our heart. And the prayer is very simple. God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Man, I came here thinking that I was okay. I came here thinking that, you know what? I've done more good things than bad. And compared to people I know, you know what, God? If you're grading on a curve, I'm all right. And I realize today that there's nothing good in me at all. There's none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God, and I come humbly before you and ask that you forgive me my sins. I believe that you love me even when I was in rebellion against you and you sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for my sins. And it was his death upon the cross where I can find true forgiveness of sin and free to the bondage of the lifestyle that comes with living as a sinner. God, I want to Believe that with all my heart. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And three days later, just as Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road encountered the risen Savior. God, I want to encounter him in my life as well. So, Lord, I just turn to you in humility before you today. And ask that you forgive me. That I be born again. That I be washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And that there will be very clear evidence from this day forward that I've come to know you that I'm a true, legitimate child of God. God, I don't want to stand before the Lord one day and go, but I did this, that, and the other, and have him, and hear those words. Be gone from me, for I never knew you. It scares the hell out of me, literally. God, I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want my service to be based upon sound doctrine and biblical truth and not on my own opinions. And Lord, I pray that you give me courageous convictions so that I don't just go with the flow but you use me in the place I am today to make a difference in your kingdom and draw others to your Savior. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.